It's a holiday weekend. We're coming All to weekend. we're coming to y'all a little early because it's a holiday weekend. So we're recording this a couple days early. But shout out to y'all. Thanks for being here, um, Scott. I, I have a uh, a holiday appropriate downbeat for us to mm-hmm. take a listen to. Here we go. Hit it. Although Virginia did not recognize slave marriages, Washington did, and marriage was the norm for the Mount Vernon slaves. Marriage provided stability and encouraged births. The status of a child followed the maternal line. If a child's mother was a slave, so was the child. A child born to a free woman was also considered in the eyes of the law to be free. Perhaps most importantly, marriage provided slaves with a sense of continuity, family, and community. However, depending on their jobs, husbands and wives did not necessarily live on the same farm. All right, so they're talking about um, the plantations at Mount Vernon, uh, the ones that George Washington, one of your founding fathers, Scott, um, was in charge of. At one point, there were over 300 enslaved people there. I've been looking at um, different sorts of, not whole documentaries, but different shorts that talked about George Washington's relationship with slavery. And I really find it interesting that these uh, slants are being painted all over this history, even in the little clip that we uh, just listened to. I'll have it in the description. They're talking about how gracious George Washington, the good slave master George Washington, allowed slave marriages where others didn't because it encouraged birth and it kept things more stable on the plantation. I guess he didn't have to deal with uh, anybody uprising if they were concerned with each other maintaining their own families. This is my question for you, Scott. Understanding the way that we shade history and explain things in a way to put some sort of positive bent on something completely horrible, would do you think centering, uh, maybe even foregrounding, this bit of history of America, George Washington, the first president, this slave owner, do you think this would uh, shade your view of America? Do you feel like you would feel any different about so-called Independence Day if this what if this is what they were talking about in your fifth grade social studies, you know, in your probably. tenth grade history yeah, for class? Me, for me, it didn't come around until I was probably in my late 20s, early 30s when I started to find out so some all of the, the way, true history. So all the way grown before you're... Sure, but, you know, look at the time and where I went to school. I was in the public school system in the 70s and 80s. You know, I mean, the book still referred to them as slaves, like whereas now workers or helpers or whatever is being integrated into the school textbook. So we were as, still, as a way to erase the truth, you sure, know, just make that clear. Sure, but it wasn't until I got Professor Julian Lafontaine in uh, in Black Studies that I got some of the real horrors behind it because he was he he did not hold any of those details back as far as. Uh, beatings in different ways oh, yeah. of of torture that were implemented on black people, on the enslaved black people. Uh, I saw it performed once. You did not because we left the concert hall in Detroit. But uh, there's a piece of music that I think we've talked about a little bit on Triloquy, the American Rhapsody that uses the words of George Washington all the way down to how good he was for writing in his last will and testament that the slaves, all of his slaves could be free after his wife died, not even after his death or not right now. But after my wife is done, after she doesn't need y'all anymore, then y'all can figure it out for yourselves or or whatever do you think um well, well what are your opinions on that 
um, as a piece of music, as we talk about, you know, so-called classical music and American music history, would you feel comfortable um, airing something like that on the radio or advocating for a piece of music uh, like that? How, would would you have a way of framing that in a, a not so horrible would, way? Would I advocate for it? I don't know. I'd have to hear it again. Yeah. Um, but just no. But yeah. But just understanding that the text is what it is, and the facts of that text, you know, as they're portrayed. I don't know. I, I don't mean to just paint uh, a horrible light on <laughs> American history right. on this holiday weekend. But I feel like these are conversations that we don't even include, much less center, when it comes to the so-called founding fathers. Do you think George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, all of them would um, be fans of Triloquy? Do you think they would listen to Triloquy? <laughs> uh, the, the 1776 <laughs> version of Triloquy or the 2021 version? I don't know what the 1776 version... We, we would... Well, first of all, mm, mm -hmm. my situation would be quite different. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Period. Okay, anyway, let's get started. I'm Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy. Welcome to Opus 106. Thank you to all of the returning listeners for your continued support. Thank you so much. The audience is really growing week to week, and uh, I'm, I'm beyond thankful. We're all beyond thankful. To the new folks who are joining us, new people joining us every week, thank you for coming. Triloquy is a podcast where we take classical music, the phrase classical music, the idea around the concept of classical music, and challenge it all the way down to putting more music into that category of classical music, especially in the context of um, America, especially uh, what we'll be talking about today on this holiday weekend. Um, Scott, you uh, you feeling good? I, I almost feel nervous to ask you how you are because you bit my head off for asking you how you were last week. Man, if you think that's biting your head off, <laughs> uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I've been on another one of those um, walk down uh, memory lane sort of things. I found a cache of CDs that were burned for me and copies of CDs that I burned for a woman from my past. And I went down a rabbit hole doing that. So I'm going to be sharing the music of Vinx in the second movement as a response. Yeah, to that. yeah. I'm looking forward to but, folks knowing more about Vinx. Hey, my fence is done, though. Done, donezo, done. All the tools put away, cleaned up, done. And the, everything is done. And you have your fire pit and everything. We're, we're ready for our, our s'mores. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Ready to go. <laughs> Not tonight, but. Um, uh, I want to uh, send a shout out uh, and uh, thanks for support uh, to the Lakes Area Music Festival. I've been named as one of their artistic advisors and I'm doing a, a summer series, um, uh, educational series for their concerts. Uh, I did the first one today as we're recording this. Today is uh, Saturday. We talked about, um, I talked about the idea of American music today, actually. We brought in some Dvorak. There was some Jesse Montgomery, a piece um, by Mason Bates and um, mm -hmm. lots more. So uh, definitely check out what the Lakes Area Music Festival is doing. I'll have their website linked in the description here. And I want to send the hugest, the hugest thank you. Where's my applause? The hugest thank you 
to everyone over at the Shuttleworth Foundation of South Africa for um, making Triloquy one of your grantees oh, yeah. uh, this year. Uh, with uh, your support, with that funding, um, we have been able to upgrade the Triloquy Studios. We have um, some you know, new equipment everywhere. We're working toward uh, Triloquy TV, getting some of this on video for y'all to see all of Scott's faces that he makes at me. Or <laughs> so, um, and and um, the funding from the Shuttleworth Foundation is also going to uh, go toward the next little side project. We talked about it a, a little bit, uh, Scott. I kind of want to do some sort of maybe mini-series or limited series that's just like straight talk, like maybe not even music adjacent at all. Or mm. I've been thinking about mm. maybe talking to my mom about anyway. So mm. we'll, we'll see what comes down the line. But huge thank you to the Shuttleworth Foundation. It really means a lot, Scott. I mean, beyond just the money that helps um, make this project continue to be possible. It's just the affirmation from an organization all the way in the motherland, you know, over in South Africa, seeing the value and understanding the value yeah. of Triloquy. So thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone over there. How do you suspect you got on their radar? Um, I was actually nominated. So uh, a huge shout out to um, my nominee, Jesse Von Doom. I think okay. you are on uh, Twitter. So thank you so much. You put me on the spot there. You were seeing if I could remember his name. <laughs> <laughs> I just figured you would. No, it's 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 late in the evening. I'm not remembering anything uh, right now. But huge thank you to you for the nomination, and once again, huge thank you to the Shuttleworth Foundation. If you would like to contribute to Triloquy, you can do so at triloquy.org. Um, today's guest is Jared Tate, Jared Impi Chachachaha Tate, who is um, an indigenous composer. He's a member of the uh, Chickasaw Nation, and his newest recording is called Loek Shopala. It's a collection of um, native stories. Um, you know, as we talk about in the interview, meant for, not I shouldn't even say meant for children, but built, you know, in, in a way for kids to understand, you know, the story of the spider bringing fire and um, oh, and, sure. the, and the uh, turtle people and all that sort sure. of thing. But how those stories really uh, play a role across uh, culture across native culture and even beyond native culture if you really sit down with this piece of music and take in what is being said it's really really phenomenal I've I've uh, listened to the whole thing it's about an hour the whole uh, collection mm -hmm. I've listened to it a couple times now I really think it's a masterpiece I can't wait to share some of that with y'all uh, today and I hope you'll go and uh, listen to that but in the meantime let's go ahead and get into our first movement Starting with some good news here, Scott, I'm going to give a sharp to the Omaha Symphony, your uh, your old stomping grounds, recently yeah. naming a new assistant conductor, Deanna Tham. I'll read a little bit here from uh, the Omaha Symphony's website. It says, powerfully compelling, Deanna Tham is known for her captivating and tenacious spirit on and off the podium, appointed the Omaha Symphony's assistant conductor in spring of 2021, Tham began her inaugural season as music director with the Union Symphony Orchestra over in Monroe, North Carolina, uh, and a season that also marked her fourth as assistant conductor of the Jacksonville Symphony. That's down in Florida. I'll let y'all read the rest of that. But I brought that in, Scott, because I just think it's cool. You know how I feel about conductors? I do. <laughs> and, but uh, women on the podium, 
in my experience, have always been phenomenal. I've never had a, an issue with a woman uh, conductor, and I'm really glad that Omaha and the musicians of the Omaha Symphony have an opportunity to um, work with Deanna Tham. I know that you talk about all the time, Scott, you've been gone for so long, and you don't really have your ear to the ground when it comes to the pulse of Omaha, but I mean, even if you can take yourself back to your Omaha days, living above of the bar, mm -hmm. Mr. Toads, I think you said, shout out to them. You know, thinking about that Omaha and yourself and that Omaha, would this moment have uh, meant something to you, been significant to you at all? I think so, because back in those days when I was attending, it was still Victor Yampolsky, Maestro Victor Yampolsky, who was in from Chicago. Well, he's from Russia, but mm -hmm. uh, he led it for... Uh, I hate to speculate how many years, but but a while, right? And uh, and then we we had a white assistant conductor, obviously. Mm -hmm. Now in the meantime, we have had uh, a black conductor take the podium in Omaha for uh, I forget the gent's name. Um, so I think it's really positive to see uh, not only it being a person of color but a woman. When I was looking up my uh, <laughs> pronouncers for her last name, uh, the website I went to. Um, went to Vietnamese. I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, she um, is specifically a Vietnamese heritage, but that's just what the, the, the AI says. Sure. I, I bring sure. that up. I wonder if, um, you know, is there a heavy Vietnamese or, or Southeast Asian or Asian uh, contingency culture uh, in Omaha that you that you know of? As far as now, I don't know. When I left, it was uh, Ethiopian and oh, Sudanese was the, you know, sort of like here in the Twin Cities, the Hmong population is pretty yeah. large. In Omaha, it was Sudanese and, and Ethiopian. Yeah, actually, growing up in Memphis, the Vietnamese population was actually very large. Like, it was mm. it was all someone, you know, if you uh, were in a class that involved bringing food from home, you know, at some point, oh, yeah. <laughs> at, at some point, you were going to have some really good beef, egg, uh, pork, egg rolls or yes, something. Yes, you, know? you were. That, that was just a part of the, uh, the, the culture down there uh, in Memphis. Yeah, just curious about that for Omaha. Um, you know, and... I ask this question all the time. I'll, I'll ask Be it again. Before, before we depart, you were asking about, you know, like not having my ear to the ground in Omaha sure. now. Let me say that I have been both to their, I, I went both to their classic series concerts, Pops, and the combination concerts, you know, like when um, uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy came through and okay. did sort of like a big band thing. Um, Pink Martini. You know, yeah, that like sort that. of stuff. Yep. Um, there, there were very packed houses across the board for the Omaha Symphony and the Orpheum Theater. There, um, I know they have a new space now called the Holland Center, and I don't know how large that is, but in the handful of concerts I've been there, there was very few empty seats. So uh, it seems to me like whatever the Omaha Symphony offered up was well attended. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And actually, you know, what I was going to ask is we talk about what's getting you, what's getting us back in the concert hall. My question was going to be what's getting Omaha back in the concert hall to see Deanna Tham perform, uh, conduct. But, you know, mm -hmm. as, as you're saying, the, the city loves their their local band, their their local orchestra. They they've always done well from what I could see. Um, you know, I was working at the local public radio station, and so I got comp tickets whenever I, you know, I would just go and take whatever single was available at the will call, you know. Mm -hmm. But it was always packed. 
Yeah. Well, um, shout out and congratulations to Deanna Tham. Uh, hoping for big, huge things in when Omaha. When did she start, did it say? It says she was appointed uh, 2021, spring okay. of 2021. So she's already... Already there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thinking about the musical transition out of this accidental, we were talking about uh, Omaha Symphony performances. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this real quick. As I scroll down YouTube and I see... Um, Beethoven this and Brahms this or whatever. I'm just not going to click it. And that's just that. I'm sorry. That counts for everybody. So I hope Deanna Tham is going to bring something interesting to more people than the traditional listener to the concert stage. I bring all that up because as I was scrolling, I did eventually find something that piqued my curiosity. It was an artist named, uh, it's an artist, excuse me, named Guster, mm -hmm. who it, it looks like um, he did a pops with the Omaha Symphony. And I don't imagine, or do you know this artist, Guster? I do. They're a, okay. they're a jam band out of Massachusetts. Um, my favorite track by them is uh, called The General. But um, I don't think that that was on the Omaha Symphony. That wasn't on the repertoire. <laughs> yeah. Well, this one is called Doing It By Myself. So here's Guster with the Omaha Symphony performing Doing It By Myself as we celebrate the Omaha Symphony and everything they've got coming up. to put you know some sort of pop music on the stage and give the strings those lush whole notes and just yeah. <laughs> let, let the rest go sometimes i don't know about some of these pops there's some there's some really great arrangements out there or some really great tunes but sometimes with when the bands join the orchestras i just feel like the orchestra is there for decoration i might as well be in the audience right I see, I see what you're saying. And it kind of felt like that was starting to happen in the Guster track that you just played. Yeah. The strings were sort of on the wall. You Wind, know, in the wind's back. back there counting rests. Right. Bassoon's probably tacit. But didn't it seem like the band, the I meaning Guster, was way out in front in yeah. that recording? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's something else we need to talk about as we're mm. coming back. When we put these pops together, we have to utilize the orchestra. We, we, we can't just, I don't know, I'm, I'm not an arranger. I, I have arranged music, and I'm not shitting on that arrangement or nothing, but you, you get what I'm saying. I have to say that when the Omaha Symphony paired up with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy, that was like riding around in a Lincoln. It was it was fancy and smooth and sexy. <laughs> yes. Nice. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, let's get to this um, next accidental. We have to talk a little bit, Scott, about Felicia Rashad. And I'm going to give this a natural. Let me make sure I hit the right button. I was hitting the wrong ones last week. There we go. <laughs> Let me give this a natural. I'm reading here from blackamericaweb.com. It says, Howard students and alumni call for Felicia Rashad to step down as dean after supporting Bill Cosby. It says here, after the abrupt statement... Um, let me see. No, this isn't the beginning. Oh, here we go. Uh, Cosby Show star Felicia Rashad is facing tough opposition in her upcoming latest gig as dean of the Howard University College of Arts, Fine Arts, as she tweeted support for her formal former TV husband, Bill Cosby, in a now deleted social media post. Mm. 
That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hours after the big erupt statement, Rashad doubled back, sharing that she supports survivors of sexual violence. Okay, so basically, the first tweet was like, justice has been served when they announced, if you don't know... A wrong Cos- has been righted or Co- something like yeah, that. Yeah, Cosby's conviction has been overturned. So she, you know tweeted in support of that i don't want to get into the specifics of how it was overturned because all all of this legal stuff all of these rules is bullshit anyway Mm -hmm. we'll get into that in the triloquy but uh felicia rashad deleted that apparently i didn't know that and doubled back by tweeting this is on june 30th she said i fully support survivors of sexual assault coming forward my post was in no way intended to be insensitive to their truth personally i know from friends and family that such abuse has lifelong residual effects my heartfelt wish is for healing that's um rather different this was such big news such good news felicia rashad the dean of um fine arts over at howard when this came up everyone was celebrating how quickly the script gets flipped okay what's your what's your relationship i'll I'll, I'll start here what's your relationship with the cosby show i watched it as a family and as and as it was coming on, like you know, in syndication. Oh, we we made sure that we were sitting there in front of the TV to watch it. Yeah, so my parents were a big fan of the cause. So you know, seeing Felicia Rashad, seeing this black elegance, this you know, uh, black excellence, and fast forwarding to you know maybe you for some reason. There are white people that go to Howard. Uh, Billy, they say Billy Ray Cyrus went to Howard University, hmm. but um, so you go to Howard and this black excellence TV mother that uh, you know you were in front of the TV for every week watching is now your dean. That would be significant for you, would it not? Yeah, I didn't know that she was there. Uh, I only and was recently appointed. Like oh, I think maybe in the past okay. two months. This okay. is what makes this okay. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I only bring all of that up because. I think we have to name that it is very significant to have Felicia Rashad in that position, this historically black college, a woman that we know from this historically black television show that portrayed black folks in a you know very excellent and elegant way. I'm using all those words, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. now you know we have this turned around because um, she, as as I read there, um, has been supporting her um, TV husband. Howard is not going to get rid of her. Like Howard, Howard has basically said, "Look, she here." And we'll see if this develops between alumni associations and students. But Howard is not budging. What do you think about their decision to keep her after after a tweet? It's it seems like the tide is turning at different rates in different spots. Because if you look over at North Carolina, um, the woman that headed up the 1619 Project, help me with her name. Nicole Hannah-Jones, shout out to her. Okay, and we just found out that they've flipped their script. They weren't going to give her tenure, right. and now they are. Right. So isn't it interesting how the flip script, how the script flipped <laughs> on the Rashad story in the different way that Howard is standing by her in those controversial? Um, I mean, I don't think that's a script flip. Like they supported her when they hired her a couple months ago, and they're sticking with her. You know, they're they're sticking with their decision. Right. I'm I'm just saying it's interesting. I mean, but but my question was, do you agree with their decision? Do you think it's okay if you if you were at Howard, you have a student, a friend at Howard, and uh, you know, from your perspective, they aren't paying attention to sexual violence, or and you know, in a way that you know people want them to. Would would you have an opinion at all about that? Do I think that Howard should be standing by Felicia Rashad? Yeah. 
God, there's a lot of moving parts there, man. Let's let's read a little bit what um, Howard said. They said survivors of sexual assault will always be our priority. While Dean Rashad has acknowledged in her follow up tweet that victims must be heard and believed, her initial tweet lacked sensitivity towards survivors of sexual assault. Personal opinions of university leadership do not reflect Howard University's policies. We will continue to advocate for survivors fully and support their right to be heard. Howard will stand with survivors and challenge systems with uh, that would deny them justice. We have full confidence that our our faculty and school leadership will live up to this sacred commitment. So, you know, they're saying what they have to say, but they're sticking with it. Sure. So let me ask you this. Is that one comment on the Cosby story, in your mind, enough for her to lose a job? Yes, as a victim of sexual violence. And I feel like that's where the line gets drawn a lot of times. You have people who have some sort of proximity to that as mm -hmm. victims or friends of victims or whatever. And then we have people that don't and just don't really consider uh, the, the implications. I, I hate to uh, diminish a black woman, especially Felicia Rashad, but from my perspective, it was a very inappropriate tweet, and it would be appropriate in my book for Howard to find someone who is a little more sensitive to those situations, especially as a dean where students mm. you know, are, where, where students may face sexual assault. Sure, I get that. Um, what about if she was otherwise reprimanded? Um, pay cut i don't know and then when it comes to no what I'm, all i'm yeah. all i'm trying to say is does it have to be a black and white if you send out one shitty text or one shitty d or um post on twitter mm -hmm. you're gone is it or or is can we admit that there are shades of gray i'm i'm not advocating one way or the other i'm trying to find out where we're at yeah i mean I think if you're asking, are there tweets that constitute losing your job? Yes, I think there are. Okay. And, that, and, and for you, that was one. I don't know if this was one. I mean, or or maybe it was. I think the just the, the cleanest thing would be for Howard to find a different dean, honestly. I'm mm. not I'm not saying that she should lose her job, but you know, I'm not censoring the job or, or her career, I'm really centering the students. And if the students don't feel safe, if they have a dean who, you know, has been on record of having a, a certain opinion, I feel like it's appropriate to have that conversation and ask those questions. So that's fair. But also we're seeing that it is possible for a woman in the position of Felicia Rashad to not quite read the room, to yeah. not quite know <laughs> just how big the uh, the ripple would be from that bombshell, right? You know, I gave it a natural and not a sharp or a flat because the response that I've seen from folks, especially black communities, it, it it's, a, it's exactly what I expected. Very, very split because people really respect her. I think it's even beyond you know the Cosby show just re because that's not all that she's done you know sure, so re sure, respecting sure. this uh monumental woman again this historic black woman giving her all of her flowers but at the same time you know not giving any room to to sexual assault and let's face it Bill Cosby admitted to what he did so it's not like it's hearsay he himself right. admitted to what he did and and the whole she's blowing it under the rug it's not about innocence it's about procedure yeah yeah and the rules are the rules again well 
we're, we're, we're coming, we, we keep returning to that. We'll, we'll get to that later. But anyway, I, um, no, it was great. Uh, no, thank you for unpacking that a little bit because when I first read a caption of the tweet, I just sort of rolled my eyes and went, all right, she'll, she'll get her comeuppance yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, somehow. But, um, I think it's important to look at it from a perspective other than my own. So thanks for that. Well, thoughts and prayers to everybody involved. Again, my stance personally is that I believe survivors and if there are survivors or even if there are people, you know, who, who have not had to uh, face that at that school, they need to be able to feel safe. And I'm not sure, sure. if they feel safe uh, yeah, I hear you. with Felicia Rashad as dean. That mm. That's how I'm approaching the, approaching the situation. I'm centering the students. I'm not centering legacy and, and all of that. A lot of moving parts. All right. So let me ask you this. Oh, boy. We all remember the incredible orchestral theme from the season five, maybe the last season of, of the Cosby show of all of the stuff that we play. We talk about Weber. We talked about how Debussy was a womanizer. He was worse than Bill Cosby. We can, we can go back in all of these folks histories and we still play that music. We, I, I make the argue all the time that there's always something else to share. Anyway, we have this piece of music that's associated with Bill Cosby by way of The Cosby Show. It was written by um, a man named Stu Gardner. Do you think it's appropriate to return to this piece of music that I'm about to play, this this orchestral <laughs> opening? I mean, I feel like if we're playing Wagner or we're doing all of that, we have the right to still celebrate a piece of music that was not written by Bill Cosby. It may have been used for that show, but I feel like that's an appropriate hair to split. No, I see where you're coming from. Stu Gardner didn't have a, a dog in this hunt. So, well, I hope y'all agree. So, here we <laughs> go. Here it this, goes. this is a little bit from the um, opening of season five of The Cosby Show. Just, I don't know, a great example of just that orchestral sound, that symphonic sound, introducing that in a black frame. You know, anyway, here, here, let's listen to it. traditional tongue-in-cheekily done style of Bill Cosby. I wasn't even going to bring him up. See, I was ready to move on, but you have to bring his name up. <laughs> I guess. What I was going to say is uh, it's a show that when I was a little kid over in Spain, that was a lot of people's view of what it meant to be American. And they didn't know black folks personally. If they happened to know my parents, those were the only black folks that they knew. You know, So mm. the, the show had global impact and um we it, it reminds me of just returning to the conversation of art versus artist how we give a little room to some people especially our white dead classical composers i'm not saying that we need to give a little room to bill cosby i'm saying let's let's be consistent that's all i'm saying there's a lot of classical music so-called classical music out there and if if we should we, we should appropriately bury Bill Cosby for the crimes he has committed. And I think we need to do the same across the board. That's, that's what that brings me to. 
I hate that Felicia Rashad is all tied up in it. I also hate that she doesn't have um, the perspective that others have when it comes to sexual right. violence. So right. it is what it is. All right, one more accidental here in this uh, first movement. You had something for us. Garrett, you know that each year Gramophone Magazine puts out the Classical Music Awards. I the, didn't know, but now the, I know. Oh, come on. <laughs> the best of the best, you know, uh, orchestra. Oh, the best of the best, huh? Right, you know. Hmm. So um, you can now post your vote for Gramophone's Orchestra of the Year 2021. Now, I don't know where what this... Ac- what accidental is this getting? Um, well, it's expected. Let's just give it a natural. Thank you. So as we scroll down here, we were talking about, well, wait a minute, they've only given us a list of one, two, three, four, of five to pick from. But, oh no, it's much longer, see? So there's 10. They actually give you 10 to pick from. Okay. But As far as the best orchestra this year. Right. So that does uh, hedge, that does bump up against uh, selection bias a little bit if you can't do a write-in. But... You know, at the beginning of... Well, who are, well first of all, who, who are the orchestras? Well, I was going to get to that. I had a question for you first. Here's the orchestras. Uh, the 10 orchestras nominated this year are the uh, Academy of Ancient Music, Academia Byzantina, the Bamberger Symphony, Berlin, Cleveland, Minnesota, Montreal, the Philharmonia Orchestra, and the Singapore Symphony Orchestra, Tunhal Orchestra, Zurich. Those are all of the possibilities. So you can't write in... Seattle. Well, I don't feel like any of those orchestras marketed to me or the communities that I belong to. So I don't I don't know who to vote for. I don't feel like I have anyone to vote for. So is that wrong? This is why I wanted to ask who you would nominate. Mm -hmm. Who would you put? Because we all know that at the beginning of last season, I put out the 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 call. The first orchestra to do an all black season to program an all black season wins. Sure. Well, that didn't happen. So let's shine an or let's shine the light on an orchestra that you think is doing some good work that you would not you if you could have nominated for this award yeah. you would have gotten in. I think there are a number of orchestras that should be nominated here and even orchestras that have uh, you know have some connection to triloquy. So I'm thinking about Ensemble Pi. I'm thinking about um, uh, uh, the Rise Orchestra Chiniki. over in. Um, over in Chicago, Chinnakee. I mean, what are they doing that's different from any of those orchestras? At the end of the day, no shade, but I mean, let's just let's just keep it real. Uh, an orchestra of all black people playing uh, Samuel Coleridge Taylor is great for the black academic, but that doesn't actually speak to the folks of today. The folks walking down the the folks walking down the street, you know need to be told that Samuel Coleridge Taylor is a black composer to even have any connection. And then I don't even know if, if that's it, you know, I think, I think there are all sorts of, uh, you know, ensembles out here that aren't a part of this orchestral industrial complex, you mm. know, that don't get the opportunity to even be. No- and let me and and let me uh, give you some real smoke. I hate to, you know, sort of uh, be ugly about this, but I'm reading here from the article. This is, again, gramophone.co.uk. It says Apple Music offers a three month free trial to new subscribers. And with this vast catalog of recordings, plus the additional of lossless audio and spatial 
special audio offering, an immersive audio experience, da-da-da. It is the perfect music streaming platform for anyone who loves classical music. I feel like this whole thing is a commercial anyway. I feel like all of this is um, Apple paying gramophone enough money to you know do whatever they need to do behind the scenes there Mm. and then just you know frame it as this you know how to vote but at the end of the day we're all clicking on this article that tells us about how apple music is the best way to listen to this um to to experience this genre and i'm not you know i don't have no i don't have no smoke for apple music please write me a check apple music if you're listening to this but but it seems like just uh, apple music commercial you think like they're you think they're in bed with gramophone i don't i don't see how they're not i mean there aren't that many words in here and a whole paragraph of it is dedicated to how awesome apple music is Mm. and you too can vote for your favorite (laughs) orchestra that has been nominated from a a a narrowed down list of 10 that you get to pick from i mean let me flip it around on you who would you nominate then if this isn't just a marketing ploy who who do you think is the orchestra that needs to be recognized I really think the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra has done some great things, especially at a distance sure. over this past year. They've had Paviel. Shout out to Paviel French. You know, they're, well, they've commissioned her once again. You I'm, know. I'm thinking about the outreach work that they've done. Um, I don't know if Minnesota has a program like that. Do you, Minnesota Orchestra? Okay, so, okay, so let me do this. All right, let, let's have a little live experiment here. Name me... Five or name me three um, guitarists who you would nominate right now for for Gramophone's world's top guitarist. This name is, me some this people. Is, this is like when you see a girl, if you if you see a young person wearing a concert shirt of like if you saw some young white kid with a Beyonce shirt on, okay. you'd be up. Name three songs. Name I wouldn't. Three songs. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do all that. My on my point was, I imagined that you could spit out the names of some guitarists that you feel like deserve a little attention quicker than you can spit out the names of these orchestras. And I think there's something sure. to be said about that. Well, this is because of what I listen to. Um, Joe Bonamassa leaps to mind. So uh, I would say Joe Bonamassa for the guitarists and the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra for orchestras look at you look at you um caping for the local people just because we're here <laughs> not but, just because but, but, but you that's un- what i that's you, what i have experience with listening to in the in the last year right but i'm but i'm but my point is do you understand my point we have these orchestras these 10 orchestras that they put here and that's fine but the common everyday person can't speak to what an orchestra is doing for them so that ma- uh mixed in with what looks to me like an apple commercial just makes all of this seem very uh, contrived to me. So am I, am I to gather here that you will not be participating in this survey? Well, let me look at the list again. <laughs> just, just give it the, give it the, the, the only, boom and we'll I, go I on. I can only see the file. No, oh, there we scroll go. Scroll on, there you go. Well, because like the Academy of Ancient Music, they sound phenomenal, but they're not playing, you know, the music I'm looking for. Like, I'm just, I'm just going down the list, and I don't mean to... I see the Minnesota Orchestra here. Shout out to y'all. My point is, 
the more that these orchestras would pay attention to actually engaging communities, I think the more colorful this would look. Because as far as I'm concerned, the orchestras that are on the ground, I'm thinking about the Dream Unfinished, you know, all of these ensembles that are really doing the work and really pushing the needle, they don't have the infrastructure to even be on one of these lists because you have to be in the room with Apple and whoever is in charge over there at Gramophone. You hear that Gramophone? Get on the ball. I have all the opinions, so we're just going to move on from this. Um, uh, in, 20, in 2020, so on this list last year, they have all these different categories. When I see all the different so-called classical categories listed, I just automatically click on contemporary because I don't care about anybody's recording of Shostakovich's fifth. Okay, So in the contemporary, what, uh, one of the thing that won uh, last year from Gramophone was a piano concerto by uh, composer Thomas Addis. I, I, I don't know if you're uh, a little bit familiar with his music. Mm -hmm. The first time that I uh, became familiar with Thomas Addis, I was playing with Detroit and we performed his violin concerto under the baton of a woman conductor, by the way. Shout out to um, Susanna Malki. I'm not sure what country she's from, but really got the orchestra together in a, mm. in a really phenomenal way. Um, I'm, uh, I believe, I hope I'm not mistaken, I'm thinking about an opera that Thomas Addis wrote, uh, Powder Her Face. Let me just fact check that really quickly. Oh, that, we've, we talked about that on the sex opus let me just make sure that's thomas addis on 69 yep thomas addis and i performed the uh the suite from that so just bringing the sexiness sure. and the uh the scandal into the opera house anyway um shout out to uh thomas addis congratulations to you for being one of gramophone's best last year i don't have any smoke for the pieces of music and the composers. I'm just saying, when you have these multi-million dollar institutions like the Minnesota Orchestra, like the Berlin Philharmonic, you know, how could how could they ever, uh, how, how could one of these smaller ensembles ever compete and make it on one of these lists? So I don't, I don't put a lot of weight into it because I feel like a community that is not involved with me, that doesn't even see me, is in charge of, of putting all that together. And if, and if that's the case for me, that's the case for most people, right? I see where you're coming from, but do you not think that there is a differentiation between a garden variety recording of a certain symphony and then one done by a caliber way up, right? I mean, it's, it's the difference between a $10 bottle of wine and a $50 bottle of wine, don't you think? I hear you. I no, hear you. Okay, so what are you going to tear me apart for? No, I'm not all tearing... I, all, I'm saying, all I'm saying is... The Minnesota Orchestra has a way with Sibelius. So they should have gotten the awards that they got for that in their recent recordings, right? Scott is in here standing Sibelius, just the that, the fins, you know, Osmo Venska, all of that. Right, because he's he's got a certain feel for it. So I really gravitate toward their recordings. So is there a recording out there that you go, this is the benchmark, this is the one that I love? Well, let me let me respond to that. So you're talking about how well the Minnesota Orchestra approaches Finnish music. Where is the uh, one of the one of the Finnish orchestras on this list? What's the you know what are the big cities Bergen or whatever? Where's the Bergen uh, Philharmonic? One of those. That's probably not even in Finland, is it? Or maybe or maybe it is. Anyway, no. The closest we get is the Bamberger. Uh, and and that's my thing. I feel like those those Finnish orchestras. You're talking about how well Minnesota does Finnish music. I feel like they over there saying. You copy my whole fucking flow. Oh, word shit. for word, bar for bar. <laughs> the Finnish orchestra 
orchestra is like, y'all shouting out the Minnesota Orchestra for playing our music. They got an Oscar for it. Not but, an I mean, Oscar. for playing our, this, this and, is and our Emmy. music. This, these yeah. are our people. I mean, Grammy. Is that is. wrong? No, it's not wrong. They, they did get a Grammy for it, though. I wasn't planning on being here for this long. So, you weren't? <laughs> anyway, I was talking about Thomas Addis. He won something in 2020. Here's a little bit of the Thomas Addis Piano Concerto to get us into the second movement here today. Before we take the second ending, talk to me. What do you think about that? What do you think about what we just heard? The Addis, the piano concert. That, yeah. that clip that you just played. That was a little bit from the third movement, by the way. Uh, uh, Boston performing that. I am not going to completely pass judgment because I didn't hear the, the lead up to it. I didn't hear. Oh, that the, was the, the beginning of the third movement. Right, but I didn't hear the first and second. <laughs> oh, so that's what you need to have an opinion. <laughs> but how do okay, you? How okay, do you don't throw, worry about it. How do you throw somebody in the middle <laughs> and expect them to go here? Here, here's a piece that you're not familiar with, and and it sounds a bit jangled. Here, I don't what, know. See, I, th I feel like that's a cop out because we can go to the third movement of the Beethoven Violin Concerto, or we can go to the third movement of the Shostakovich Cello Concerto. Right. That was a, all right. I'll say it. That was a challenging piece for me. Mm -hmm. And that, you see that clip that you used was challenging for me. Okay. And you see what what you consider challenging. I am far more interested than that in that than hearing um, how quietly the Minnesota Orchestra can play the first few bars of the Sibelius Violin Concerto. Because, Why are you dragging that in? <laughs> because that's what you said, or maybe maybe not the Violin Concerto, but you were talking. You did mention Sibelius, and my I'm, I'm all I'm saying, Scott, is that when we talk about seminal recordings, how can we put something objective on music? like that I, I don't that that does not make sense to me i can't name the seminal uh recording of a thing because everybody's interpretation has something to appreciate i know that sounds like miss america to all of y'all me trying to straddle the fence I, but that's really how i feel i i can't even start to we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have a, a gustav mahler length opus here if we unpack that so Okay, Save well, it. shout I'm out to every, shout out to everyone at Gramophone. Go, I'll have the link in there if you want to vote for your favorite of these ten orchestras that they have said that you should be voting for and should appreciate as the world's best. Go for it. Maybe I'll vote for one too, or maybe I won't. Anyway, Scott, uh, how did you take the second ending this week? Well, I told you that I found a whole cache of CDs that had been sent to me mm -hmm. from. Uh, a woman in my life that I left behind in Omaha when I moved here, and also some copies of CDs of mixes that I made for her. We did not communicate very well face-to-face, -face, but in a playlist of a mixed CD, we were very good at communicating. And there was one artist that uh, started off one of the mixes that I made for her maybe in 2010. Um, I caught on to uh, a black man from Kansas City named Vix, Vinx Dej Dejan Perret. 
and he just goes by Vinks. And he was uh, playing in a bar cafe in Kansas City, and evidently Sting, of all people, stumbled in to get out of a quick rainstorm and heard his music and signed him to their label, Pangea. And that's, uh, I also saw Vinks tour with Sting on the Soul Cages tour. That had to have been 91 or 92. But there is uh, a song called There I Go Again, which is, in my mind, very sort of crooner-based, even though he bills himself as a percussionist. And he plays all sorts of, you know, African drums and djembes and multiple different sorts of percussion instruments. But you can hear in this track the command that he has of his voice. As he vocalizes here, he's just in it. There I go again, thinking about you. I wonder if you're thinking about me too. There I go again, laughing at myself. Ooh, thinking of all those little things that we used to do. It seems kind of hard to imagine. Okay, so a couple things. You talked about this artist, Binks, in relation with a woman that used to that you used to date, and y'all communicated best through uh, through music. Sending this song, putting this on a playlist or whatever, and wanting her to listen to it was your way of telling her what? She was on my mind. I was thinking about her. These lyrics, I mean, uh, it seems kind of hard to imagine that you might be feeling blue. If you knew that I was thinking about you, then maybe you'd be smiling too, because, ooh, girl, I'm thinking about you. It says sinking about you. Well, that's there. what he says, sinking. <laughs> um, that, I find that curious. I don't want to turn this into my getting all <laughs> in your business, but looking back on communicating through music, we love talking about music uh, says what words can't. Well, when you think back on that relationship and how artists like Binks played a role in your communication, do you uh, w- would you do it again if you went back do you consider that in retrospect a healthy way no, to I communicate probably, no i would probably go right to her and go look um i'm gonna lay it out here and just tell you that i'm crazy about you mm. i'm falling for you and i would like for you to not see other guys and see only me oh so that was the problem hmm I'm sorry to hear that. I've had that issue, but that's how Look, that's how the men do us. That's all I'm all I'm saying is that I had a legitimate shot and I just sort of blew it. Mm. And you know, she's married now, has a couple kids, um, no bad blood between us. But that was just an instance of me spending about a week and going through all of these old notes, literally old notes, mm. and just uh, questioning all of my choices <laughs> sure um but i didn't wallow i didn't uh, or as my mom used to say waller mm. i didn't waller around in it for too long i experienced the emotion i sat with it uh felt away and then moved on good for you for returning to some of that music because there are songs that i don't listen to because they remind me of things that oh, yeah. i don't like to think about sure you know? so there's that too um, before we leave this, you know, 
from what you've shown me about Vinks, we watched a clip of Vinks on uh, Arsenio Hall, you know, back yeah. when and really getting it. To me, this vibe seems like an outlier. Uh, do you do you consider this uh, song "There I Go Again" um, representative of his general style? Because so far I've heard this, but I've seen the very active, you know, Jimbe playing, you know, more upbeat. That's things. his main. That's his main bag. That the that, more upbeat. Yeah, that's his main thing, and uh, that drum is always with him. You know, he's like I said, he plays dozens of percussion instruments. And in the uh, the album I Love My Job from 1992, you will hear him. I don't know if he's doing it multi-track, meaning going back and recording over and over and over, or if he's using a, a loop pedal or mm -hmm. something. But he uses his voice and breath as percussion and layers everything in. And it's really a symphony of sound, the way that he puts together his breath voice and instrument all into a song hmm. well I, I appreciate your breaking that up i i don't mean to you know i didn't mean to dig or anything but you know when you when you speak about this music so personally it just makes me think of things it, it, I, I i can't help but to ask certain questions or mm. or uh you know but i'm, I'm I, ho I hope that you, you you said you didn't spend too much time wallering i hope that you really didn't <laughs> uh only I know for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the way I'll, I'll talk about the way I uh, took the second ending uh, this week. So um, among the many things I do is, uh, you know, work for the American Composers Forum. And we're actually going through equity training with an organization called Innocent Technologies. Anyway, um, one of those meetings took place where we're just going over some uh, nuts and bolts of, of things. And on this team is Gao Hong. Are you familiar with uh, Very Gao Hong. So yeah. Gao Hong is uh, local to the Twin Cities. Uh, she plays a, an instrument, a Chinese instrument called the pipa. And it's sort of, I don't know what you can even describe. I mean, maybe lute-like, guitar-like, but it's really its own unique instrument. It's plucked, um, or not plucked, but, you know, played outwardly. So you're not plucking the strings in. You're, right. you know, pushing them out. It's a, like a thrum. Right, right. Thrum. It's it's a really um, incredible instrument. Gao Hong uh, plays it masterfully. Anyway, Gao Hong made me feel really good. So we were just talking to her at the end of the meeting. And she uh, talked about how, you know, she misses hearing me on the radio because she would wake up early in the morning and hear a familiar voice. Mm -hmm. And then often hear some familiar music and, and say to herself, oh, wait. That's my recording. <laughs> <laughs> Gao Hong's music, I think, is perfect for that early, early morning. Maybe when you're, um, you know, have to go on a road trip and you first get in the car, you're not ready to just, you Rock. know, slam on everything. So I think her recordings, um, you know, what many would categorize as world music, what we, of course, affirm as classical music, incredible stuff. Uh, the recording of hers that I used to um, illegally play <laughs> and the ones that I've been returning to, uh, uh, this week is called Walking the Distance. Uh, you know, obviously you can think about the many radio breaks you can make about the concept of sure. walking the distance. You know, just conceptually, it's a really good idea to uh, think about. And I think when uh, the idea is uh, matched with music, it can really create a, an incredible moment. This uh, this excerpt, uh, well, the tune Walking the Distance, by the way, also features Isam Rafay, who plays the Oud. So, Scott, between the pipa and the oud you have some you know some east meeting further east <laughs> mm. i'm just glad to see 
that there's a musician out there with the with the same style I'm going for. <laughs> the baldy beardy look. That's what you're paying attention to. <laughs> of course, because I'm dealing with that. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, well, here, here's a little bit of Walking the Distance featuring Isam Rafay on Oud and the one and only Gao Hong playing the pipa. This is the Oud starting us out. say i gotta get me an oud and then that thing and then with gal hong on top of that you know this is basically just an improvisation so they're listening to each other and and vibing off of one another such a huge world of classical music that we have to pay attention to even on this uh so-called holiday weekend and uh (laughs) speaking Mm. of which i think that uh, offers a good transition into the third movement here so as as i mentioned in the um in the opening uh, in the uh, announcements, composer Jared Tate has recently uh, put out a recording called Loek Chopala. So I, I didn't plan on um, uh, Jared's feature to be, you know, during this Independence Day holiday and any of that. It just kind of worked out that way. But I can't help but to think about that, of course. When we think about American classical music, I always affirm, you know, the foundational nature of the Negro spiritual, mm-hmm. but it's very, very important to recognize that even before that, there was, uh, you know, eons of musical and uh, storied traditions. You know, a few weeks back when Babatunde was on, he really said that, you know, one of the saving graces of opera that they could really use to move things forward is focusing on the story, really finding sure. a story that is compelling to people. I think these stories uh, from these uh, native tribes, Jared, Jared is uh, of Chickasaw background, so it, so much of this is specific to that. But, you know, when you generally when you think of um, these uh, stories from these indigenous communities, they're ones that must have been compelling enough to last for all of these thousands of years, you know, and they're still being um, accessed and addressed. And for them to be matched uh, with just this really incredible score, it's breathtaking. I I talk about I know I talk about a lot of music and a lot of music being good. But Loic Chapala is a work that I've really spent a lot of work, uh, a lot of time with this past week so I'm really excited and really honored that I um, get to share my conversation with its composer with you Jarrett Tate Uh, one thing that I found really interesting that I found myself thinking about in the final movement of this almost hour-long composition Jarrett Tate ends things with what how guess what instrument just puts a bow on everything it's an instrument that we use here on Triloquy to do the exact same thing. Is it some sort of a flute? It's a gong. He uses the gong. And the first question that I asked him is, is there any specific, I uh, were there any specific ideas around ending the piece that way? We sort of end Triloquy with a gong because it's a big final statement. And uh, I, I think his response to that question uh, was, was similar. He spoke to the drama. So here's the end, the, uh, a bit of the final movement of Loak Shapala. And here's my conversation with Jared Tate. 
it's just drama, man. <laughs> <laughs> just a lot of feelings, you know. I mean, look, it's we're very, very fortunate that we've got such a highly developed symphonic orchestra as a, as a color palette for feelings. It's really, really great, and and it's like many artists have today in the fine arts in general. It's like we all have so much to work with. That's that's a culmination of many different technologies, actually, from many different kinds of people. And so, you know, I mean, it's like if you look at filmmaking, oh, my gosh, the gear that people have and oh, yeah. the ability to express in, in art. I mean, all the medium that people have to work with, it's all very developed. I mean, you know, doing stuff on iPads now that's even better. I mean, people do flip a clip videos that are just unbelievable. So so we just have a lot of ability to express ourselves. And, you know, that's just one of those tools. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> I'm just I'm having a lot of feelings when I write music. And as all do, all artists have lots of feelings that they're trying to express. And so I just have a beautiful, beautiful tool of the symphonic orchestra to, to work with. Yeah. When, when I think about uh, the emotion behind self-expression, um, I tend to think about language. Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, there was an episode of the show uh, Westworld that took place completely in the Lakota language. You know, understanding your Chickasaw background, I, I found myself trying to learn words and and little phrases and, uh, and something that I found interesting that I wondered uh, if you could speak to. I learned um, the phrases chokma and mm -hmm. chokmoshki. And when I hear the similarities between, you know, how they sound, at least to my ear, it seems like there's gratitude in, um, in acknowledging someone else. I mean, you well, know, chokma is a hello and a chokmoshki yeah. being a thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, actually, they're, they're, this is the same root word. Chokma actually means good. So if you look like something, you say chokma, that's good. And so it's like when you greet somebody, it's almost like you're saying everything is good. Mm. And chokmashki literally means all is good. So it's just, it's a variation of same thing, but chokma means good. And so you can use that in different ways. And it's kind of almost like aloha, where it's a greeting and a, a salutation as well. It's it's both. And so chokma is used on in both circumstances. And then there's chin chokma ta, chokma ta. There's, it, it's different aspects, like if you're addressing a group or, you know, how are you doing? You know, it's, it, it's so it's a, it's a basic word of goodness. Yeah. I wonder what are some of the infrastructures um, in preserving uh, that 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 language and the practice of the language. I mean, it's throughout your piece of music. Are there are there you know intentional ways in which this history is being preserved? Mm -hmm. Abs absolutely. And you know, we're part of a of a cultural revival that's been going on really well since the '90s globally. And so many, many languages are being revived and preserved and relearned. I mean, there's language immersion schools, there's dance, you know, uh, uh, events that are happening where people are learning to dance, you know, like crazy. And so there's all kinds of cultural revival happening across the globe. And in fact, you know, my, my mother's side of the family is Manx, Manx Irish. And there's there's a huge Celtic, you know, revival as well that obviously happened with river dance was a big mm -hmm. proponent of that. And so there's there's that happening, but the Gaelic languages are being re reintroduced and re-preserved, that kind of thing. So so yes, it is very, very intentional. In fact, the, the Chickasaw Nation has, we have our own uh, Rosetta Stone series that anybody can watch online. We have our Chickasaw Dictionary online that anybody in the world can access and learn the language. And so that's, it's just become, you know, with, with the, obviously with this technology that we have, we're really leaning into that as tools. But there's many tribal members who live all over the country who now have access to that, which is really, really great. And so just, we're doing all kinds of things to, uh, to very consciously preserve our language and culture. One thing I really enjoy doing in the music that I write is that I, I use our Chickasaw language, but also other tribal languages 
um, in the works that I'm doing. And so I'm putting our tribal languages on the same concert stage as traditionally German and Latin and French, you know, Italian are. But of course, you know, we have Chinese and Russian and Cambodian. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of languages that are on the opera stage, which they should be, which is just a terrific human thing. So so I'm really glad to be somebody who is is working on, on that part of our cultural, you know, heritage and survival um, is uh, bringing the language into the concert stage. Yeah, when we talk about all of these languages and stories, specifically in Loak Chapala, uh, I wonder um, if you think about the fact that, you know, there may be some folks who understand these languages, but most of us are just taking in just what mm -hmm. we hear and in a similar way uh, that, you know, that we would approach an Italian opera or, or, or something like that, you know. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's going to have it's going to have two experiences at the same time, which are all both valid and, and really cool to think about if you're, you know, so it's like it like, for instance, when I just premiered a work a couple of years ago in the Ponca language, I was up with the northern Ponca in Nebraska and, and, you know, it was sung in Ponca and I know that tribal members in the audience could understand that. And then there was other non-Poncas who didn't understand it, but were hopefully getting the ethos that I want to come across with. Mm -hmm. So, so when when you're talking about opera and languages like that, um, there there is a dual experience, and the composer is very aware of that, and that's okay. You know, it, it's it's just a it's just a different experience depending on on the listener, uh, and that's really fun. And it's fun to talk about afterwards. You know, to say how yeah. did that affect you? How did, and then somebody who knows the language, well, how did you feel the language was being you know framed? You know, how did how did that affect you as a speaker? And somebody who doesn't speak, how did you enjoy listening to? To the language how did it affect you so all those all those responses to it are just so cool and, and equally valid i feel like the context that um a lot of us westerners have when it comes to symphonic music and narration are works like peter and the wolf and and young person's guide do you have yeah. to do you feel yourself advocating for your piece of music as an adult friendly experience an adult friendly composition well, absolutely. And I mean, you know, when you say adult friendly, I mean, I'm basically I'm trying to I'm, I want to make a human connection. I will say some like some of the movements are more like family, like all family, like a Spider Brings Fire is a great children's story, yep. but it's also for all the families. And and um, maybe clans is maybe a little more grown up in terms of its intensity or, you know, how, of how I use the dissonances and stuff like that. But um, I do hope that anybody who's listening gains something out of it. I mean, I'll, I'll say this, you know, when I was very young, I listened to very intense orchestral music as a, as a as an adolescent and it had incredible impact on me and i loved listening to it and i also lis liked listening to things that were more consonant like in the copeland vein you know that type of thing and so i had i had a mix of attractions as well as kids but also if you really think about it it's like what kids are listening to in pop music, I mean, they're listening to the most dissonant music available to oh, yeah. mankind. <laughs> yeah. So kids, the kids are already by the age, you know, of seven, eight, and nine, they're already, you know, ingesting very intense sounding music. So I, I don't really necessarily feel like I'm going to write anything that's that's more you know, that could be more dissonant than Lincoln Park, you know, <laughs> so, really, you know, so, so it, it's, I, I don't know, I, I guess I, th I do think about all those things, but more importantly, I'm more concerned about what I feel that subject needs in terms of artistic and emotional treatment. And hopefully that will connect with um, all kinds of people that are all ages and all cultures and, and backgrounds. Yeah, your, your attention to um, so many types of music and, uh, and so many types of sounds, I think is apparent in this piece of music. One of the things that I 
found myself thinking about as I listened to it, especially the second time through, you know, we get to those, um, one of my favorite movements is uh, Shawi. I think it's in like seven or something mm -hmm. really, yes. really cool. And mm -hmm. I listen, you know, to music like that. And I, and I work hard to not compare it to other things. I, I found myself actively saying, well, it, it reminds me of Stravinsky, but maybe I shouldn't be making that comparison. I, I wonder how you approach that conversation. Well, I, I appreciate that. Oh, first of all, Shawi is my my family's clan. Uh, that's the that's the raccoon clan, and so uh, so I had some very specific driving feelings about about that. And I do like seven eights. I think seven eights are really cool. Um, <laughs> I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think I think the kind of the, the attitude of all of the above is a really really good one to think of. Listen, I, I I hear all kinds of music every single day, and every piece of music influences me somehow. And I mean, it makes me think of different decisions, whether I mean, it doesn't even matter whether I like the music or not. It makes me think about my own personal decisions in, in my co composing. So, I mean, you know, look, Prokofiev and Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky were definitely my wheelhouse as a kid. And and I grew up in ballet. My mother was a choreographer. And so I grew up in the theater. And so I grew up with these major ballets. And, they, and of course, they're going to have a tremendous impact, as do many other composers. So like in the pop world, one composer who had a tremendous impact on me in terms of ethos was Peter Gabriel. Hmm. And I mean, you know, I don't know if, you, if you're old enough to remember, but he did an album um, for the soundtrack to The Last Temptation of Christ. It was called Passion was the name of the album. And oh my goodness, did that did that album have an incredible impact on me in terms of deep, rich? I mean, his synth orchestrations were pretty outstanding, mm -hmm. and his, his the level of expression was was very very deep. And then at the same time, there another group uh, that really affected me was Ulali, and they are they are a, a group of native uh, gals. There's three gals, two Tuscarora and one who's Mayan and Apache. And they sing in the language and they harmonize traditional tunes in these modern ways that are just incredibly impactful to me. And I, I when I, after I got to know them, their music, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's another bar that I have to live up to. And then another an Irish group, Anuna, uh, you know, Michael McGlynn is their composer for that. I got to know them through the river dance phase. And oh, my gosh, yet another standard of writing with Irish folk music. And so, you know, there's all these basically all of these composers created standards that, that I want to live up to and heavily influenced how I hear music. So like with the Irish music, that Celtic straight tone has a great impact on me. And I love strings and voices singing in straight tones. And even though that's not necessarily specific to native, you know, identity and music, mm -hmm. it's an ethos that works for me. And so there's all these tools. I will say one Stravinsky did say, a good artist borrows great artists steal. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm very familiar. Really, really did. In fact, uh, in fact, I mean, he was borrowing from all kinds of composers that were contemporaries of his and he codified it. Same thing with the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles were stealing from John Cage blatantly. It was incredible right. with their, with that, you know, with the, with the, out, what, the white album, that was all actually quite modern music that was being, that was happening in, in the classical realm. So they were literally stealing. Well, of course they had an orchestrator that was working with them at the same time, but this happens everywhere. Everybody's yeah. borrowing from each other all the time. And I think it's a very, very healthy thing to do. And what's incredible for me to, you know, think about continuing on that idea as much as we borrow from so many different places, it mm -hmm. still allows for there to be um, a spotlight shined on what is uh, specific to a culture, what is specific to a people. The um, mm -hmm. your, your piece begins, you know, um, as, as I'm thinking back, I'm really moved by the story of uh, the turtle and then how that translates into um, a shaker and, and, and shaker songs. I wonder um, if you could speak 
speak a, a little bit to that uh, specifically. I think generally um, mm -hmm. folks are, have heard the phrase powwow drum or a drum right. circle, but I feel right. like um, the, the shaker songs are a very significant part of, of the stories and the culture as well, you know, a part that we might not always center, you know. Absolutely. You know, basically woodland um, Indian culture is very shell shaking based in its percussion sound. And so we have turtle rattles. And so that's the story of Luxi is, is how we got the turtle rattles as part of it's a, it's a it's a critical part it's a rosetta stone part of our culture it's totally mm -hmm. keystone to it so that sound shell shaking is is a really critical sound to our culture and so of course naturally when i i i actually use shell shaking sounds quite a bit in all of my orchestrations because it's such a signature sound to our tribe mm -hmm. and so and it's something that percussionists can do very very easily in an orchestra and also you can look get different colors out of different types of shakers or how you treat it and of course i will i will expand and and um you know abstract rhythms um as, as a modern composer does so yes I, I do lean heavily into shell shaking in my writing and that is present in this piece and so i i love doing that and i will do that also when i work with other tribes I'll find aspects of their culture that I think are really signature to them and lean into that as well. So um, I'm very, very conscious of this, and I'm just really grateful that I get a chance to, to do that. So many of those songs and um, melodies we hear in this piece, they're um, sung by the soloists and then, you know, mimicked or even accompanied by the instruments. I wonder if there are limitations there. Are there, uh, are there uh, affects or accents or things that don't quite you know, fit the way we're taught to read music in an orchestral setting? Well, you know, honestly, at this point, the sky's the limit. There's every possible kind of music being made. And, you know, most most classical musicians are very aware of this, especially the studio musicians that I was working mm -hmm. with in the, in the recording. They're, they're really, people are people are pretty savvy about the entire world and, and get things pretty quickly. So honestly, I, I see it as a bunch of just awesome and you just kind of mix awesome. And, and I think it has, I mean, the composer has to really think it through about how to best communicate it on the page to get mm -hmm. everybody as close as humanly possible by just simply reading the music. But when we first, you know, premiered this work, like in the, in the double header where you literally have just the straight up stomp dancing with straight up orchestration. Well, in the rehearsals, we brought in the stomp dancers in the orchestra and neither one of them had ever performed with the other ensemble before so an or this orchestra had never worked with stomp dancers and the stomp dancers had never worked with the yeah. orchestra so it was a blast it was totally fun because you know at first it's like you just got to get all the ugly out and just kind of trip all over each other and then it's like oh i see and the orchestra gets that actually stomp this particular song is in a three very consistently and the sh and the shell shakers realize oh the orchestra fits us oh because the composer put it in a meter that works and it, it's congruent so all it's I'll tell you man it, I nerding out <laughs> talking about it right now but it's so much fun to, to to combine those and the challenges for me inside are so cool and fun about like, okay how am I going to get everybody on board as quickly as possible and when you we, it, it's when you just come at it with an attitude of joy it usually works out you know but there but I mean look that's I mean if you uh, if you take another tribal music like Hopi's oh Oh my mm -hmm. goodness, the phrasing and the meter switching that can happen is really, really intense. And so uh, that's a real challenge for a composer if you're going to transcribe that and translate that for readers. Well, you know, I've got to be really, I've got to really understand what I'm doing that and what notation I feel matches the best. So, so some tribes music is a little more straightforward and some is a little more complex. It really depends on where you go and it depends on the song. I really, so, but oh, go ahead, so go ahead. one other thing that you mentioned that was that I think is really important too is that you talked about the call and response. That is absolutely critical 
to stomp dancing. Stomp dancing is a leader calling and the group responding with the gals doing the constant 16th note shell shaking rhythm. And it's, it's, it's a groove it's, and it's totally groovy. And so when, when in stomp dancing during the ceremony, it's like, it's the coolest feeling with, with that call and response just going in the crowd. And when there's a lot of people, man, it's really, really cool and very powerful. Yeah. 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 The only thing I was going to mention there is I appreciate the care um, that I see when you approach um, the music of indigenous people that, you know, you don't belong to. It's not this one massive thing. I really appreciate that when you speak of other traditions, you really speak um, with the respect and, and the care of, of an outsider, if I may use that word. Hey, I really appreciate that. You know, it's really interesting. I, I think this kind of applies to humans in general, but I, you know, in Indian country, there is definitely a, a monolithic sense that can happen. Like North American Indians will feel unified in many historical or even cultural or spiritual aspects. And at the same time, we are unbelievably diverse. So if you mm -hmm. compare the West Coast folks to the Southeastern folks, I mean, just night and day. So there, so we kind of were fluid about how we move between feeling monolithic and diverse depending on the circumstance. And I think every community in the world feels that. I mean, you know, if you go into the Asian community, well, oh my gosh, you know, the word Asian is a monolithic word, but right. and it breaks down into many different disparate cultures. Mm -hmm. But it's so, and sometimes they will feel unified and sometimes they feel very different from each other. It really depends on what's going on. You just pick any part of the world and you can apply the same thing. I mean, my gosh, we live in the United States. You want to talk about having monolithic feelings and diverse feelings at the yeah. same time, boy, are we feeling that in space right now? <laughs> you know, so, and, and so, so I, I think this applies to, a, it's a human experience to, to have that. So I, I really do try to be conscious of honoring my cousin tribes and also, uh, you know, and also feeling close at the same time. It's, it's kind of, it's both at the same time. Yeah. You mentioned uh, earlier, spider brings fire. And I was, I have to say, I was most moved by that story in this piece. The spider, just as an aside, you know, the spider has been a symbol of my family for generations. We're not in indigenous. It comes from something different, but we, we, we all have a, a spider tattoo somewhere. And, you know, there are eight members of my immediate family. So when I think about, you know, that story, I couldn't help but to make it personal. And I was really moved by it. I wonder if there are still, um, is if, if there are still contexts for these age-old stories um, in your life or some of the people that you come across, do you find yourself, you know, recalling one of these, you know, stories from long, long ago here in 2021? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Spider Brings Fire, for instance, is, is a basic hero story. And it's somebody mm -hmm. who had a superpower that not the community was not aware could be so useful to the community. And Spider's very patient going, you know, I can do this. And they're like, yeah, whatever, you know, just totally distant Spider. And that's that's a universal story. It really, yeah. really is. And so, you know, we, we all have those challenges and sometimes we feel overlooked. And so we can you know, use a story like that to be like, you know what, if I just keep my faith in myself, eventually this is gonna come through. But also from the other side, it's like, hey, sometimes we're overlooking opportunities that we're not, you know, that's right in front of us and we're not aware of. And so maybe if we open our eyes and our hearts to be a little more you know, open to that. So I, I think those stories, I mean, I think about that all the time. And I, you know, my, my son is seven. I've told him this story many times and what I feel the significance is. And sometimes he'll, he will say himself, so it's kind of like when Crow or blah, 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 you know, he'll, he'll 
Michael mentioned the animal. Animal stories, I think, are some of the best stories. That's one of the reasons why we all like Peter and the Wolf, too. It's like you yeah. got these characters that go with animals. One's more serious. One's a little trickster. One's a little, you know, this kind of thing. And those those characters can be different depending on what part of the world that you're in. But, you know, you know, traditionally, I mean, all humans have animal stories that relate really, really important things about being human. And I just yeah. think that's just so cool. Yeah, even the more serious stories like Animal Farm, you know. Yes. Really, <laughs> so it's, yes. It, it, it really runs the gamut. You know, well, as, you know, you know ahead, what it ahead. does is like, you know, if you think about Animal Farm, it really, that was a really clever uh, way of modernizing an ancient way of, of having animals talk to us about us. It kind right. of pulls ourselves out of us so we can be a little more objective and learning. And the animals do that. They pull us out of our shells into a, and, and allow us to observe in a larger context. That was a really great modern version of, of embracing how animals can do that for us. Yeah, yeah. As, as, we, uh, as I moved more uh, through the piece of music and got uh, to the hymn, I'll say that the way there was a section um, in which the uh, bassoon is doubling the vocalist, and I had to pause it right there and look at the rest of your catalog because your use of the bassoon throughout the piece is so incredible. And I saw that you have a bassoon concerto, so I can't wait to find, find, a, uh, find a recording of that. But um, it, it was such a, a beautifully solemn moment. But again, not um, working hard to not superimpose, you know, my sensibilities on the piece of music. When we get to the hymn in this piece of music, is this a solemn moment? Is this a moment of hope? How do you contextualize that moment in the piece? Both. Absolutely. First of all, the bassoon concerto you can listen to on my YouTube channel. It is on, on the, it's called Jared Tate videos. And so you can go and listen to that. Yes, I have, I am partial to the bassoon. I love it because it has a baritone vocal quality that I think is really, really beautiful and special. So when Ted asked me to write the bassoon concerto, I was just, I was in like Flynn. I was just really thrilled about that. The, the, the piece hymn is based on um, one of the tribal hymns that we sing, both Choctaws and Chickasaws sing, um, in Indian church. And this hymn actually was, uh, as far the story that I know is that it was composed during the removal when we walked from Mississippi uh, to Oklahoma. And it is a, a hymn of hope and courage. So it is very focused because you're right, it is solemn, but it is also inspiring. And that's why it starts out very cantoral at the beginning. Well, first of all, I sing it straight up as it's sung traditionally. And then it goes into the baritone and soprano and that that is a, a very solemn and very focused and meditative um, treatment of it but then it comes into a final climax where that is to me is the hope of the tribes surviving you know the, the removal and the and the long walk over here to Oklahoma so there's a lot of feelings like that that and I would say that's a very adult reflective absolutely type of feeling of our people and and the hope that came with that but that was that was a, actually a, a very important movement to me yeah. And in listening to that music, you know, if we can uh, speak a little bit more uh, broadly outside of the piece of music specifically, you know, that idea of hope makes me think about, um, you know, the futures that many of us are trying to, you know, push for, uh, push for when we talk about change and, and uh, equity specifically. I'm really going through, um, I've been going through for the past three or weeks or so, a, a thought journey on the use of land acknowledgements. I, I remember the first time I heard a land acknowledgement years ago and began to incorporate them in my work. Um, but lately, I've, I've been challenging myself and uh, considering how performative that is or what, com what comes after just acknowledging the land. I, I wonder if you had any uh, thoughts there on, on that topic. 
Hey, I, I really appreciate that. Yes, I, I think they're deaf. I mean, there are obviously some performative aspects to it. But one one thing that um I, I kind of, I mean, I do that anyway, because that's just what I do professionally. I'm, I'm always talking about the tribes that are local, usually because I'm working with those local tribes. So I've always seen it as more of a, hey, fun fact, you are actually in the original land of blah. Isn't that the coolest thing in the world? Well, I think the next step for people to do is first of all, I, I I think it's a I think to treat it in a really positive vein is really important to be like, hey, isn't this cool? Isn't this really fascinating? And I feel that when I do that, then I can also back it up by saying, and by the way, you can now awesomely enough look up every single tribe that you're around on the web you can go to their website that and and every tribe has their own website and they've got historic like there's always a menu of like the tribal history and their tribal constitution there's usually videos of local dancing or there's all kinds of stuff and so immediately people can actually go to those tribal resources and learn and enjoy and celebrate also YouTube, oh my gosh, is there tribal presence on YouTube? You just pit, type in your tribe in YouTube and boom, you've got all kinds of videos that people take. Some people uh, are more focused. Like for instance, there's a there's a grit, there's this gal up in, in South Dakota that does one thing called Pow Wow Sweat. It is literally a, a Rosebud Sioux gal who teaches the tribal steps in like workout gear. And mm. she goes back and forth between her being in workout with her friends and in full regalia doing the same dance. And they, you know, they, they go, they intercut between the two and she's teaching the steps. Anybody can log on and learn the crow hop. It's just like the coolest thing ever. And so, that, but that's something that some people can, I think that's the next step is, is, now let's look at our resources. Well, you've got uh, you've got tribal centers, you've got Indian community centers in big cities. There's always an Indian center that you can find. So I think it's really important to if you're going to do an acknowledgement to also and you know pair that with local like resources like websites or any kinds of radio stations that have tribal focus, that kind of thing. Doing that kind of research, it's all very available and it is a beautiful celebratory thing that people can do and go, "Oh, great, I can actually include myself in this knowledge and and just enjoy it and be like oh there we go and so anyway the, i think the next step is to enjoy the the resources that we have to learn about local tribes yeah i appreciate your framing it positively because the agitator in me the, de, de, the decolonist <laughs> in me often yeah. wants to approach the conversation as you know this is you know where i am this is wapakuti sioux land and it's time for all of you homeowners to give it back you know but <laughs> but, I, but i do appreciate yeah, what, what I, you've said about you know learning more and 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 making that a part of the action I, I'm, I'm definitely going to do that myself well I'll, I'll tell you you know the the fact that i'm that i'm chickasaw doesn't make me knowledgeable about everything in the world and i mean if there was if i was going to cambodia i would have the exact same questions and like what do i how do i get to know i don't know cambodians and so i have to have the same humility if i'm going somewhere else as well even though i can say i am indigenous you know it doesn't mean i know everything and so i try to remember that in and and with other folks who don't you can't know something and, and, until you learn it. And so while I'm here, I have an opportunity and hopefully for the next 50 years, I'll, I'll be able to continue to do this. What an opportunity for me to help people learn. And the best way to do that, quite honestly, is to lead it with love. Yeah, you talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, you talk about teaching, you talk about composing, all of these different things. I listened to um, another uh, interview of yours, and you really advocated for the portfolio style career. And I think um, <laughs> since COVID, you know, we've all have figured out things that that we had. And I wonder if you could uh, take a moment to uh, just speak to that, the importance of really taking yourself out of a machine and figuring out how to, you know, juggle, as, as I as I say. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we are 
were doing it in spades. I mean, our, our trees really got shaken, didn't they? Yeah. And so I think leaning into it and seeing the silver linings and seeing the opportunity is really, really important. And if you think about it, look, we all come from people who struggled before every single person on this planet. I mean, our ancestors before us did not have it as easy as we did. So here's our current challenge. And so I say that we honor our history and our survival of, of anybody's people by doing the same thing, by going, you know what, they did it, we can do this. And to have this kind of can-do attitude, I think is really important. And that does really lend itself to that more portfolio thing. And if you go back in the day, I mean, before we had, you know, insurance, I mean, insurance is yeah. only about 50 years old or so, <laughs> right. or, or corporate jobs or anything like that. I mean, dude, everybody is, is freelancing. Really, if you really think about it, every single family or fa what group, a community is trying to figure out how to survive. And we're always having to reinvent the wheel. That's just a constant in the human experience. So I think if we can see it a little more like that, it takes some relief off and go, you know what? People have done this before me. I can do this. I can take this day and solve one problem today. Tomorrow I can solve the next problem. And you just kind of take that one day at a time. And those problems add up. You ever saw The Martian? I love that movie because he says that at the very, at the very end when he's talking to the kids after he comes home, he's like, you know what? You have to say it and go, okay, I've got my first problem. I can solve this. And okay, now my next problem. And what he ended up doing was he became his own staff of people teaching himself how to create an environment that he could live in. And he survived on Mars until people came and brought him home. It was yeah. like, it was, I loved it because it had a universal message of, you know, innovation and we have self creativity that we can tap into. It, I, I loved that movie. I thought it was a great example of, of just a universal human survival. So I have the same feelings about that. And I have a lot of faith that we are all born beautiful and brilliant and we have a lot of capabilities and we all have our own superpowers that can that can come in handy in ways that that may pleasantly surprise us yeah that taking it one step up at a time reminds me of again a a, a portion of loic chapala striking those stones until you know not giving up until you know that fire that fire yes. hits you know you, you get that right. fire how can folks uh learn more about uh, loic chapala more about you and uh, and 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 everything that you're doing well, I do have a website. It is jaredtate.com, J-E-R-O-D-T-A-T-E. -E. And there's actually a new uh, page dedicated to Loak Chopla on that. And But that's that's really the starting point. And I also have a YouTube channel that's populated with some really, really great uh, recent performances that I'm really happy about. That one's called Jared Tate Videos. I'm also on social media. I'm very accessible. I mean, my phone number and my email are my website. So, you know, you can call me. Okay, <laughs> you're brave. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, why not? You know, it's really, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a pop musician. So it's, I'm, you know, I'm not Justin Timberlake. So it's not going to be like that. You know? So, but, but also the reason I say that is because there's often a lot of students in college who have questions about, you know, career, how to move ahead, that kind of thing. And so I do like to make myself available to help coach kids and anybody who's, you know, like lo looking for different angles and making careers in music and the arts, that kind of thing. So, but I'm, I'm very accessible on, on all those, all those platforms. Yeah, where, where I wanted to um, tie a bow on things to leave things off, you know, there there's an excerpt from the from the piece where the narrator is speaking to their stories becoming ours, their songs uh, becoming ours. I wonder, you know, with that in mind, what do you see as our path forward as, as a general society when it comes to, you know, healing, you know, after this past year, the, the conversations of race we're having, are, are we positioned for their stories to become ours, ours, theirs, et cetera. I think we are, and I honestly believe that we are positioned for the greatest success we have ever known. I think we are going through 
honestly necessary growing pains. This is actually part of the, the growth process. And I believe in a, a very, very bright future. Think of it like fashion. <laughs> Every time people meet, they exchange fashion. And the end result is always cool. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> But, you know, art and fashion really do that. It's really, really, and music does it in spades because, you know, we're, we're so connected. But I think that this interconnectivity that we're experiencing right now has growing pains to it. But I have, I think we have a bright human future ahead of us. Well, that makes me hopeful. Jared Chokmoshki, thank you so much for spending the time. Yako K, I really appreciate it. Have a great day, okay? Some trill bassoon there. That's an excerpt from Jared Tate's bassoon concerto, Ghost of the White Deer. Um, one of the things that I asked uh, Mr. Tate that I wanted uh, to ask you, Scott. So we talk about these age-old stories, these stories that we teach children that have application beyond uh, childhood. You know, uh, one story that I'm thinking about right now that's uh, depicted in Loic Chapala is the idea of never... Um, to never stop striking those stones until you get the fire and you don't get the fire the first time you strike it, or maybe not the second or maybe not the 100th time, but the exercise is continuing to strike those stones until you get that spark. That's one thing that spoke to me. Uh, also the story of us, uh, the, uh, the spider brings fire. Anyway, mm. uh, I wonder if there are stories, you know, from your childhood that you still apply you know to your life think about as far as moving forward and and, and all that sort of thing i used to love aesop's fables mm -hmm. and the dog in the bone was my favorite one about that which basically teaches you to chew what's in your mouth don't worry about what other people are, are eating chew what's in your mouth radar then, needs to hear that and you get to keep that <laughs> yeah <laughs> but really uh you know it's it's not I don't know where it comes from, but I do remember once my dad telling me the story of the little boy that cried wolf mm -hmm. because he caught me in a lie. And when he told me that story, I'll be damned if something didn't click. <laughs> it made in, sense. In the back of my head, and I went, oh, I get it. So when I really need help, you're not going to be there. <laughs> okay. And I'm sure there's I'm sure there's a native story that, you know, is sure. uh, is adjacent to that. So, again, please, everyone go check out Loak Chapala by uh, Jared Tate. Incredible converse, uh, composition and and a really credible uh, thing, I think, to pay attention to and think about again during this so-called Independence Day. Thinking about the folks who were here before, think, thinking about the people who were, you know, intentionally damn near extinguished and the music and the stories within yeah. the music that survived anyway i think is um, really incredible all right let's get into this final movement with our our trill this week <laughs> ¶¶ 
trill. That's plenty of trill. I, I I felt like that was appropriate to bring in this week. We don't say John Philip Sousa's name a lot. Haven't said it once. Um, but shout out to John Philip Sousa. I hope he wasn't racist because <laughs> because I think his music is an incredible way to learn how to play an instrument like the piccolo. Mm. Shout out to all the flute and piccolo players out there. I know that's just one of our excerpts. I don't know if anyone has ever even had to play that on an audition, but that's just one of the things you learn in school as you know a, a, a musician. All, all the folks learn how to play sleigh ride. You know that's a part of being in band, right. and all the piccolo players learn how to um, play that. So that's our little uh, trill from the repertoire this week all right look everyone's talking about um shikari richardson so we're gonna have to go there so to quickly update anyone who may not be familiar with this story shikari richardson broke all sorts of records at uh, olympic trials a couple weeks ago for the 100 meter dash um was very excited about going in x y and z not long ago she tested positive for cannabis use has uh, gotten a one month suspension which disqualifies her for the 100 meter race in tokyo at the olympics i think it's a big deal because as far as many people concerned she was likely going to win she set the record for the event at the trials the world record you know uh previously held by flojo herself right you know so it's not like she wasn't going to be a competitive part of this at the Olympics. But anyway, I think that's uh, definitely a a big part of this conversation. The first thing that I really want to make sure is clear is that she did nothing wrong. I understand what the rules are. She objectively did nothing wrong. I want to, I want to start right there, Scott. Do, Do you agree with that? What are your ideas on the relationship between right and wrong and how that's different from rules, specifically when it comes to cannabis use in 2021? I think that anytime somebody lays down a set of rules and you agree to those rules in order to compete, then you both entered into an agreement. In this instance, though, I don't see where weed is in a, where weed is an import performance enhancement. Right, is people How? out is people all over classical music taking things like beta blockers and things that do actually enhance your performance, and then we have things like cannabis that just is a regular thing. I mean, do they also test for tobacco? I will wonder. Do they test for cough syrup? I mean, it's it's no different than than any of these other things. And, you know, when you talk about entering an agreement, you know, I, I understand that conceptually, but I just can't help but to think about the idea that there are power structures there. The the Olympic committees or whoever it is, they get to make these rules and there is no consequence on their end as far as what these rules are. But these folks who have dedicated their very lives to a very specific sport and to be able to compete on a on a you know, global level, what, what do those rules matter, you know, when it comes to uh, fulfilling your, what you see as your life's purpose? I don't think it's fair to just boil it down to both parties entered in agreement. I don't think it's that simple. No, that's, and I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is I don't understand where weed is on the list of enhancements. Yeah. Yeah. Because aren't they talking about steroids and things that um, get, make your muscles grow and not fatigue as much and all that you know okay how about this everybody competes roided out everybody takes everything and let's see what how about that (laughs) i mean fine i mean do do it take whatever you want and see how far you can go i'm i'm not 
I, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I, that doesn't bother me. The, the idea of that. Now, I'm also not competing in these sports. If I don't have access to whatever shot that these people over here, you know, can get that the, their shot in the arm that can make them run faster or whatever, I think that's an issue. So I, I think we should pay attention to performance enhancing drugs. I just don't I just think don't it's think, fair to. I just don't think that we consider an, this one. No, I don't think that weed is an is a performance enhancer. If if. All, I made a joke on somebody's timeline that what would her time have been if she didn't smoke? <laughs> she, what button do you need? <laughs> that, that's slightly problematic to me. I'll laugh, but again. What is the name of this show? <laughs> what is the name of this okay. podcast? Triloquy, fine. <laughs> no, I, I, get, I get the joke. I'm, I'm just sensitive about it because we're isolating this one issue, but even this year, during this year's Olympics, there have been so many other circumstances that are forcing people to call racism. It's not just Sakari Richardson. It's folks in Africa. Didn't you, uh, weren't you talking about the folks in Africa who, sure. um, who tested too high for testosterone or something? Two Nambian Olympic medal contenders ruled ineligible for women's Namibian. Sorry. I got trifocals here and I'm not. Namibian Olympic medal contenders ruled ineligible for women's 400 meter due to, this is important, naturally high testosterone levels. We also have the issue of the swim caps that, you know, you can't have a big big swim cap, which Mm -hmm. means... If I happen to be one of the world's greatest swimmers, I could not participate because a rule says that I can't. So what am I supposed to do? Just cut my hair to abide by the rules? You know, I, guess I don't so. I don't I, I, I think that's really fucked up. And when we you know, we're, we're sitting here talking about this weekend, you know, with this holiday weekend patriotism and and all that sort of thing. I want to root for these folks at the Olympics because I'm rooting for them. But isn't this just a perfect example of how America sits on the global, on, on, on the global stage? You know, isn't well, it pitiful? And, I, and it's historic. I forgot to mention it. I meant to uh, mention it uh, way back in the first movement, a, uh, a quick natural. You saw, you know, last week you were kind of raising an eyebrow at the idea that Hitler and them were looking at the United States as, you know, the 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 blueprint for what they were doing over there during the Holocaust. I sent you, you yeah, know, I that little it. thing that that lays that out. So is from from me, you know, I think about that in in this context because it's just the perfect example on the global stage of how much bullshit the United States puts on its own people. She is competing, she broke breaking a world record and that's still not enough. You know, there is still something to hold to, to hold her back. Uh, the the tie that I that I've been thinking about to music with all this again, I mentioned those beta blockers. We mm-hmm. can talk about all the different things that we do to calm our nerves. I have smoked a little bit before a concert. One time I smoked a little I indulged a little too much. I was actually on stage, you know, it was fine, but I felt like okay, I wish I had taken two fewer puffs, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, that would stress me. But out, anyway, but, but, and that was during a uh, Hindemith symphonic metamorphosis too. But <laughs> well, I think but, it's funny that the that the Onion came out with the best headline yet again, which is saying what? that um, that penalizing her over some bullshit reason 
is a bigger represent something like it's a bigger representation of what we stand for than a than a gold medal would. Exactly, exactly. Now, this podcast is called Triloquy. A couple people sent me something. Yeah. As soon as you get in the news, as soon as anybody gets in the news, gets in the limelight, they pull up the old tweets. They tried to pull up some of mine one time. Um, I won't read them here because I don't think it's useful to the conversation. But Shikari post has posted on Twitter some pretty homophobic things, some some problematic things. Um, I, I I have thoughts. Do do you have any? Thoughts, does this impact your opinion of the situation or how, or how you think you uh, approach it from your perspective? No, I still don't think that she should have been suspended yeah. for smoking weed. And the fact that she happens to have some homophobic thoughts, I go, what a surprise. Now, that does not mean, right, I, I, have, a, I have an issue. I, I have a big issue. And it's not to say that I'm pulling my support for her as much, you know, as understanding that I put into context for me means I am really censoring an issue that needs to be changed. And I think that's something across the board, especially when we get into these conversations of, of equity when it comes specifically to arts organizations. It's so easy for us to get into our feelings about um, individual people, about what we value out of them, you know, and instead of uh, centering the person or the or the issue involved. I, I don't know if I can root for Shikari Richardson, you know, whenever she does make it to the Olympics because of these these tweets. But I advocate for her right to be in that space that makes to sense. do that thing, yeah. despite the fact that she smokes some weed. We have to get rid of those rules. I mean, have it wouldn't be no music if it, if it was a rule against uh, <laughs> smoking weed uh, on, on the on the orchestra stages. Yeah. I think it's important for uh, musicians to participate in this conversation and to really think about it again because the way that we don't center um you know the the actual accolades i think is a, an issue here with this olympic committee and i think it can be an issue uh, across the board we have to just normalize letting people live their lives now i'm going to read another one of these treats i'm i'm going to uh, read this one this comes from uh, dr nadine thornhill i read this and retweeted this a few weeks ago it says to my well-intentioned white friends here's a harsh truth i need you to accept some black folks will never be okay with you and if you truly care about writing racial injustice you have to fight for us anyway i'm thinking about this tweet right now for me because with these homophobic tweets that i'm sure will more people will see as this uh story develops it's important for all of us to still understand that we have to write racial injustice and i'm sorry there's no reason for me to not see this shikari richardson situation and all of these other situations around the globe as as not racial okay um there there's the one runner who tested high for something and said she ate a burrito and it was okay i'll, I'll find that article for y'all and i was gonna bring and that put it in too. there but um but again, I just wanted to, you know, make that clear because I have very openly advocated for Shikari Richardson on my social media and I continue to advocate for her here before anybody, you know, else sends me one of these tweets, you know, trying to, you know, cancel out my advocacy. I am, you know, trying to do what's right. I have a very personal relationship, as we all know, with 
you know, my interpretation of rules versus what's wrong and right. So I always have to advocate for that in the same way that, you know, we all have to advocate for the issue at hand, even if folks who would benefit from us fighting that are people that we don't necessarily um, agree with or have any sort of um, relationship with. Um, that's that's all I have um, for that. Do you, do you have anything else on Shakari? I just want to, no, I just want to sum up that I... I want to make sure that everybody knows that I'm not saying that she should have gotten that suspension just yep. in case I was not clear at the beginning, because if, like I was saying, if you say, yes, I'm going to go to the Olympics and I agree to not use performance enhancing substances, I don't think weed's on that list. It's, it? it's most certainly not. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm ready to disqualify myself from the Olympics right now. <laughs> yeah, I you, think you, are you ready as well? I'm okay. with you. Bye, y'all. See you next week. <laughs>